HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Serving soup face-to-face to customers across the country at Zoop Eatery locations for over two decades, the Zoop Good Really Good team learned people's preferences, and they used this as a secret sauce to create a collection of super premium soups, flavor-forward broths, and gourmet broth concentrates. Available in nine varieties, ranging from chicken pot pie and spicy chicken chilada to portobello mushroom bisque and butternut squash, the clean ingredient soups are perfect for enjoying a comfort meal in minutes. The broth lineup, which includes chicken, beef, veggie, and seafood broths, plus bone broths, features rich, simmered all-day flavor. For even more versatility, Zoop offers culinary concentrates, which easily boost the taste of casseroles, pastas, and rice dishes. All products are packaged in recyclable and reusable glass jars, free of artificial ingredients, preservatives, and GMOs. They're available at your favorite retailers across the country and through Instacart, plus online at zoopbroth.com, walmart.com, and Amazon. Browse recipes and learn more at zoopbroth.com or by following at zoopgoodreallygood on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. This is Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cavaro. And today we are joined by a chef and cookbook author based in the Chicago area. It is Paul Farabach. He is the chef and owner of Big Jones in Chicago and the author of the new cookbook, Midwestern Food, a chef's guide to the surprising history of a great American cuisine with more than 100 tasty recipes. And I can tell you from taking a look at this cookbook, there is a lot to offer and Paul's got a great story. And so I am really grateful that he is on the show today to share it with our audience. Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me, Capri. Absolutely. Uh, it is my pleasure because, you know, from what I know of you, I think you and I share a lot of the um, the same mission when it comes to, um, you know, I think bringing uh some education around Midwestern food to the rest of the country. And you are a Midwestern native uh, growing up in Southern Indiana. How did your upbringing and, uh, you know, coming from the Midwest uh, inform your path into the culinary world? Well, I grew up in a very rural part of Indiana. I mean, Indiana is a largely rural state, but in a town 
and county where uh, there was a lot of old line farms uh, when I was growing up. People still had uh, diversified farms where there were pigs in the yard and a chicken coop. And uh, they'd also have dairy cows uh, and cattle they were raising for meat. And um, food was very much uh, part of community life, which I guess you could always say that is true any time of any time of year, any any place that food is part of community life. But there it was food production was mm-hmm. very much a part of community and family life day to day because uh, we were raising our food. Most of the people around us were raising our food. And so it was very seasonal one. And that that's extremely important in, in informing me and how I like to cook and approach food. You eat strawberries in June because that's when you have them. Um, Right. And you eat uh, squirrels in October because that's when the state says you can go out and hunt them. Um, so definitely a very seasonal approach, uh, definitely very fresh ingredients because again, there were kitchen gardens, most people canned at home. Uh, while I was growing up in the seventies, uh, that was changing pretty rapidly. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who had these old line farms were passing on and their kids didn't want to continue that work and, you know, went into, went into different fields and these farms just gradually were converting to big corn and soybean operations. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, the town was really excited that a a giant uh, corporation at that time, I don't know if it was global yet, but a giant corporation noticed our little town called McDonald's and decided to open a, a restaurant there. And so the, the, the fast food restaurants started to move in, and it was convenient. Um, when, you know, when I taste that stuff now, you know, if you go and eat at a KFC or a McDonald's, I always wonder, you know, how could anybody who grew up eating this real food um, just fall for that so easily? Right. Uh, but but we did. And, you know, so a lot of uh, the inspiration for writing Midwestern food was sort of witnessing that. Um and the continued decline and decay of these old food ways. And as my parents were getting older and aunts and uncles, I wanted to document as much of that as I could. Because that story of, of, of the rural Midwest, uh, people have talked about, the, you know, the rural South is that story has been told. Um, it continues to be told about the foods that they eat in that culture, uh, the Northeast, every other part of the country, it seems like that story has been told. And the, you know, the preservation of those foodways is considered important in all of these other parts of the country. And that hasn't really took taken hold in the Midwest. And I wanted to kind of get some document work done about it. And that was sort of what started this book. and, And it kind of grew from there as I realized that there's, there's a lot going on around the entire Midwest and these stories that haven't been told or are misunderstood or being mistold, which is even worse than having, Mm -hmm. you know, having a wrong story or, you know, some incorrect or blatantly false legend or lore about something is almost worse than not even telling the story 
because it obscures the real people behind the foods that we're eating. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to get word out about the Midwest and kind of correct the record and start from a set of facts and, and recipes or, or, or facts. And I chose the format of a cookbook because, um, recipes tell stories. And I, so I really let as a, even as a chef, I used almost all of the recipes came from somewhere or someone else because it's their story, not mine. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to let the recipes speak for themselves. But so that's why I chose the, the format of a cookbook. It's some, it's what I'm comfortable with. And I think that it, it, it recipes tell a story in a very powerful way. I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. I mean, you're speaking my language on so many different levels that, you know, food and recipes, they, they have a unique storytelling capability. Um, and that, that the Midwest itself, um, is, you know, by and large, very misunderstood, um, when it comes to, you know, its food ways. And, um, because of that, uh, you know, I think the desire for preservation has really been overlooked, uh, in, or at least obscured, um, and, uh, definitely eclipsed by a, a number of other regional food ways, as you mentioned, the South, Northeast, et cetera. Um, so I, I'm curious to know, how you started, you said, you know, you wanted to kind of try to document, you know, these things. How did you start to embark on this process? What was your methodology? Well, it was really just picking my dad's brain and recording that stuff on, on uh, voice memos on my phone and writing things down later when I got a chance. Um, and my aunt Rita, uh, and mom, and so, you know, to get as many of these stories as I could, um, and also reading just com- uh, community cookbooks, which I read mm-hmm. voraciously from different parts of the Midwest, um, and tried to f- sort of understand what was going on. And, you know, it's always really fascinating to hear dad talk about the farm because dad had a very keen memory about, uh, everything um not mm-hmm. just uh farm life he had he was a, a a school teacher for years um and could read a book and tell you all about it um you know just right after reading it he he just he just would remember things in a phenomenal long-term memory so i could ask him about you know what they did with all the different parts of the pig when they did their annual hog killings you know, wow. how grandpa cured the ham and you know when they smoked it and and you know tell me about the 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 wild cherry wine again and those types of things. So I would record these stories and write them down. And a lot of these actually at the end of the day, didn't make it into the book because, um, and I, and they'll be written and documented somewhere else. I haven't decided where yet. I wanted to make the cookbook as approachable as possible um, because an important part of preserving foodways is, is for people to, uh, eat them and to make the foods. So, um, if I set out a bunch of recipes, you know, from, uh, a German American hog killing day, um, <laughs> where they're making the liver sausage and the things they're doing with the intestines and the head cheese and all of that, it's probably, probably not a lot of people are going to make those things. Um, and we are fortunate understand. in the West, I think at least, at least to, to, to this day, to have little local butcher shops all over the place that are still cooking 
or that are still making a lot of these recipes for sausages um, and cured meats the same way that they've been making them for generations. So you don't have to kill the hog and process it yourself. You can go to a, a butcher shop probably nearby and get a lot of the same things that, you know, grandpa was doing on his farm. So I'll, I'll, I'll be publishing that stuff in another, in another uh, book at some point. But, you know, like I, I adapted grandpa's wild cherry wine recipe, for instance, was one of them uh, that did make the book. Um, but I had to adapt it from a 55-gallon a, a barrel to something that was a little bit more practical for people right. to do at home. Um, and my grandma's, uh, my grandma's cherry pie or a strawberry custard pie uh springerly like the springerly cookies all of these things that uh people used to have you know at least once a year for generations that maybe aren't as common anymore right but i mean you know in the process of putting them out there again i mean you you are playing that part of preservation and continuing to have those you know those recipes passed down from generation to generation how did you do the research <laughs> outside of your own personal experiences, having these conversations with your father and your aunt and family members, but, you know, going into these other parts of the Midwest and capturing the sentiment and the food ways of those areas that maybe you weren't as intimately, you know, uh, familiar with. I mean, I did a lot of travel in the course of writing the book. And, you know, the first thing I would do would, would be to read about the city in advance, um, either through guidebooks or through local interest publications uh, and try to get either through, so I would read about the city in advance, either in guidebooks or uh, in local interest publications, which are pretty easy to find Mm -hmm. um, in almost any town. Um, so even after I, you know, I would like before I went to Cincinnati, I found uh, Dan Wollert's books, uh, you know, he did a, a fantastic book on Cincinnati chili and one on Cincinnati wine, which is a really fascinating history. People don't realize that Cincinnati was the original wine capital of North America. And really the entire California wine industry was seeded by uh, the wine industry that had grown up around um, around Cincinnati really fascinating history there. So I was able to do a lot of this reading before I even went to say, for instance, Cincinnati. Um, but I knew chefs and writers there, uh, Justin Dean and, and Jed Portman, particularly who were able to point me in directions. Uh, Justin Dean, I, I featured in the book because he's doing really cool work on a farm. Now, uh, he's no longer a, a, a restaurant chef, God bless him. And, um, so, you know, so in, in, those instances I was in almost every city, I was able to uh, pick the brains of, of chefs that I'd met at events around the country. Um, Rob Conley and in, in uh, St. Louis and, and Kim and Gavin Kaysen in, in, uh, in Minneapolis uh, and so forth. So it was, uh, so there was a, a fair amount of reconnaissance beforehand, but you know, you never, never um, underestimate the power of sitting at a hotel bar and asking the bartender uh, what they like and what they think is really cool around town. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's no substitute for, uh, you know, suggestions from the locals. And, you know, I noticed in your book, you, you know, you have a number of meet the locals as, you know, part of your different sections throughout the cookbook. You mentioned Rob Connolly is one of them who actually has been a guest on the, on this program previously. How many places did you actually physically go to collect information for this cookbook? Uh, I think it would be hard to count, uh, Cincinnati. Uh, I probably pretty much went through Columbus. I didn't really do justice. Uh, Cleveland, uh, Detroit, uh, obviously Chicago, um, Grand Rapids, uh, Madison, Milwaukee. I didn't really get up to the North woods. I, you know, this was, I was writing this during COVID. And so mm. these personal profiles, um, I wanted to do a lot more of them. I think I had 12 of them slated. That turned out to be difficult, but also just travel was kind of. Sure. Um, I was I was one of the the, the COVID, pe the, the people who was really extremely adamant that I never get COVID. And so I was extremely cautious and it inhibited a lot of travel. I never got to the North Woods of Wisconsin or Minnesota, but uh, I did Minneapolis, um, Iowa City, and uh, I didn't get out to Sioux City. Um, and St. Louis was, was maybe one of my favorite trips. I think that's a terribly underrated, Amen. Uh, food. I, I agree. think it's a terribly underrated food town. And of course I'm from Southern Indiana. I've been in, you know, central Illinois and Indiana, the whole state have kind of been my domain for a long, long time. My partner is from, uh, South central Illinois. So we get through Illinois a lot and get through, uh, and get through Indiana all the time. I spent a fair amount of time in Louisville, which I kind of consider a Midwestern city. It's yeah. technically technically on the other side of the border. Um, I get it. That's that's how I feel about Pittsburgh <laughs> and Buffalo. I actually wanted to get to Pittsburgh, and it just and it just didn't happen. And it, it's one of the things that I, nobody's really pointed out yet about the book that um, is I think is you know maybe hard to pick up on was that at the beginning of the book, when I sort of define the Midwest and I look at, you know, the ethnic groups and the, and the topography and, you know, Pittsburgh gets put squarely in the Midwest. Um, it, and Buffalo actually belongs in the Midwest. Those cities have more in common demographically and also historically in terms of their importance Absolutely. as industrial cities um, and existence as part of the Rust Belt um, you know, uh, there's a very common experience between those cities and, say, you know, St. Louis or Cincinnati, um, Milwaukee. And so those cities belong in the Midwest, but I just and they've actually got a lot of really interesting food in, in both Absolutely. of those cities. And I just didn't get there. It's it's uh, you know, it's a it's something that, you know, we grapple with as well. Working with this program is you know, how rigid do we want to go with quote unquote geographic boundaries? And, you know, there are X amount of states that are considered part of the Midwest, but you do have to consider those cultural, you know, uh, affinities. And, you know, I come from Northeastern Ohio and, you know, I'm a short drive from both Buffalo and Pittsburgh. And there's no question that those communities and, and so I've included voices from Pittsburgh and from Buffalo, even though, you know, people don't, check those boxes as, you know, Western Pennsylvania and upstate New York. And sometimes, and then you have those, that fluidity, when you talk about Louisville, you, we have the fluidity as well of that, that interface with Appalachia, 
in this part of the in this neck of the woods too with Pittsburgh and the and the Three Rivers and the Panhandles of West Virginia and so you get a little bit of that happening. Um, so there there are you know interesting uh, nuances in trying to define foodways and they're really not necessarily you know easy to to put in a box, which is you know. Uh, what really struck me about the the way that you approached your cookbook is that it shows, you know, the fact that Midwestern food is not some sort of monolith, which I think is, you know, the common misconception uh, amongst people that may not be from, you know, a community that might be considered in the Midwest that, you know, it isn't, although you do have a chapter or a section on meat and potatoes and state fairs, two things that, you know, state fairs, uh, tailgates and Main Street cafes, definitely things that um, I think folks uh, associate, you know, by and large with the Midwest. But, you know, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here that touches upon the, the, you know, cultural diversity, ethnic diversity. How did you, you know, make your short list? And then I want to ask you about some of your recipes in here, but how did you narrow these recipes down to say, okay, these are the ones that are going to make the cut? That's actually a really good question. And it was one that pained me a lot. You know, I, I have a list of recipes that I didn't get in the book uh, just because of space. By the time we got, I was contracted for 90,000 words. By the time I got to a hundred, uh, my editor was like, uh, uh, come on. And, uh, then we got to 110 and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And by the time we got to 120, <laughs> it was just like, you stop, you're done. Um, because you also want to put the more pages and the more weight the book is, the, the less affordable and approachable it is. Yeah. And so we really had to stop short of what, you know, might have otherwise been, and there can always be and likely will be another volume of Midwestern food that goes into more obscure and more, uh, you know, visiting, you know, the the little bergs and really kind of getting out of the mainstream of the Midwest. Um, As far as deciding what would go in, I actually had drawn a big sort of, I don't know if I would call it a tree, but I had, you know, I hadn't even really figured out what I wanted the chapters to be or how to approach it um, because Midwest Midwestern food is so much different from say Southern food um, or, or New England cuisine in that it really developed and became a cuisine concurrently with industrialization. And that's not just the industrialization of, uh, you know, automated manufacturing processes and automobiles, but it was also the industrialization of food, um, yeah. and dual income households. So things like mm-hmm. casseroles are obviously very important. They were time savers and they also exploited the new uh, industrial food system in order to feed people inexpensively, nutritiously, and with minimal tax in terms of time yeah. on the household. And you know, we're primarily talking about uh, women who were doing the cooking uh, in, uh, you know, throughout our history. Um, so minimal tax on women in terms of, you know, getting dinner on the table while there were so many other things going on. Uh, so I, I really, I started this kind of, <clears throat> these big splotches of, you know, these are foods that we eat with our hands and, you know, these are you know, foods that we eat while we're snacking. Uh, and these are, you know, definitely like sit down and have dinner kinds of foods. And, you know, these are the the pies and the cakes. And, you know, so I would 
put foods in these and take foods out of them. And as I took foods out of them, I would put them in another list, which I still have that goes, you know, like I said, for probably some sort of volume two. You know, it was really my intuition more than anything else, although I did have some discussion with with certain friends who are really into food um, about whether things like, you know, Western Kentucky or Owensboro barbecue should be included. Um, and that's the mutton barbecue of, of Western Kentucky that you find. Mm-hmm. It's the Ohio River Valley, essentially. Yep. Kind of the Midwest. Um, and ultimately, I left it out. Um, again, that could probably go in some sort of second volume. Um, I, I was really encouraged by everybody to put that in. And at the end of the day, I, I just wanted I had I felt like this book making a lot of the claims I'm making, um, you know, sort of taking fried chicken and saying, hey, the South, this isn't just yours. This is also ours. Um making a lot of the claims that I was making that I had to make this book bullet sort of bulletproof. Yeah. And if I started, you know, tipping over the, what, you know, perceived borders and boundaries, it was definitely better to just stay North of the Ohio river. Yep. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that didn't really inform, I mean, I would have gone to Pittsburgh cause I, I love Pittsburgh. I've been there, you know, a few times, but it's been many years. I just didn't make it. Well, as you said, we got we got we got another volume, right? So you can come back anytime. Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, this the what I'm seeing here is I'm looking at some of these, and I, I want to kind of ask a little bit about you know some of the actual individual recipes. Um, just as you know, if you're a lay person looking through this, and you know you're trying to find uh, you know a a recipe to make, um, and you see something like watermelon pickles or pink squirrel under, uh, you know, cocktails, or, um, I'm going to butcher this, Apfel Clutchen, um, you know, under, under breads. And then you see, you know, I noticed some, some interesting regional ingredients. You have shorgum, pecan, sticky rolls, and I saw a pawpaw pie further down, um, you know, and then you have things like latkes and, of course, you know, uh, uh, obvious things like chicken and noodles and the bane of my personal existence, Cincinnati ch- chili, Queen City chili, you have it here. Um, just so many, you know, different types of of uh, food and recipes that give you a sense of, like I said earlier, the, the, difference, the differences and the complexities of Midwestern foodways. Um, you know, what would you say is maybe the most I don't know, off the wall out of all of these. If you like, I mean, I'm looking at this here, cranberry and bone marrow pudding pie. Now that's a combination. I don't think I would have come up with. Where did this come from? Uh, that actually came from, that was one of the very, very few recipes in the book. That and the pawpaw pie are two recipes that uh, are, are pretty much just mine and that I've done at the re- that I've done at my restaurant, which is ostensibly a Southern restaurant. Um, you know, the pawpaw I definitely wanted to include because it is our our largest native fruit. Um, and it was actually during colonization and dur- during settlement, I guess. Um, you know, they would se- they would publish all of these pamphlets and books uh, that that were targeted at Europeans. Mm hmm. Um, to entice them to emigrate to the United States. Um, and 
Um, it's really, you know, it's kind of macabre thinking about it now and because of what was going on concurrently with the treatment of the First Nations here. Absolutely. But, you know, they were really trying to make it sound like such a rich and abundant land, which it was. Um, but but pawpaws were always and, and persimmons actually were were always hyped up in these in these pamphlets and, and books that mm. were published for Europeans. Um, I guess maybe because they were like these strange exotic things that people would yeah. be able to enjoy when they got here. Um, but I, you know, so pawpaw, there just aren't a lot of, there are no traditional recipes. It's, a, it's always been a difficult fruit to cook with. And it's, you know, that's something that I've cracked, um, myself, um, a code that I've cracked, I guess, that I've figured out a few recipes that do work with, with pawpaws. And I wanted to include something so people could get cooking with them. The cranberry and bone marrow pie actually came from uh, an Appalachian cookbook. Um, but it was up in West Virginia, which is mm-hmm. definitely maybe South Tidewater, but actually very close to Ohio. And Absolutely. I was just fascinated by it. Um, a bone marrow custard pie. And, you know, I made it once at the restaurant and I thought, God, this is just too rich. And, you know, taking a, a, a page from my, my grandmother's cooking with that, that strawberry custard pie, which I think is the very first sweet recipe, if I recall. Um, I thought, you know, this, this bone marrow pie could use some sort of fruit. And I used blackberries because that was what was in season at the time. And good wild blackberries have a, a nice sourness to them. And Absolutely. it was just great. You have this really, 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 really rich, unctuous, aromatic bone marrow um, sort of tempered by the fruit, which in the context of the custard sort of becomes, you know, almost something you you slurp. It's like, I don't know, it's hard to describe, like a creme brulee-like texture. Mm -hmm. Um, Just really good stuff. And so I just decided I wanted to include that recipe um, as a cranberry recipe, because that's maybe my favorite version of it now that I've cooked it with, you know, I've cooked it with rhubarb, I've cooked it with peaches. Um, and so, you know, something to use cranberries, which cranberries are actually native to the Midwest. It's something that yep. I think a lot of people know. Wisconsin. Don't know. Yep. Wisconsin particularly. Um, and, uh, the Midwest probably produces more cranberries at this point than, uh, than New England does. You know, the big ocean uh, ocean spray, the big uh, cranberry concern is from Massachusetts. So, yep. you know, I guess that sort of informs people's picture of that, but it's definitely a Midwestern fruit. And so I wanted to include um, a cranberry dessert because people don't use cranberries enough, uh, uh, for, you know, for again, for one of our native berries. They don't use them enough. And so, yeah, I, I sort of put those two ideas together and came up with that pie. It's funny that I landed on, as I'm just going through this list, landed on two that actually, you know, you, you know, you created. What about ones, you know, you, you know, you, we started this conversation, uh, you're saying that, you know, most of the recipes in, in your book don't come from you because it's not necessarily your story to tell, even though you're a chef, uh, you know, and obviously you're trained in the kitchen. A lot of these recipes come from other sources. What would you say um, is the most unique uh, out of those that, you know, are not necessarily ones that you developed on your own? Oh, sure. Uh, That's actually really easy. 
Um, and it's still, I mean, even to people in Chicago where it used to be a thing are like, it's a what? Um, is the the snoot the snoot the the barbecued snoot from St. Louis, and uh, they used to be a thing too on Chicago's South Side. Um, Chicago and St. Louis, as you might imagine, uh, there's just one big highway, and used to be a railroad line that went between the two. There's a, a mm-hmm. lot of commonality in the urban cuisines, particularly in the black communities, um, because both of them are also connected deeply to the the Delta region mm-hmm. and New Orleans. Um, so pig snoots used to be something in the in Chicago as well on the south side, but you can't find them here anymore. Uh, although in St. Louis, you can still find maybe a dozen places that do them. And it's it's not, as you might think, the, the actual nose of the pig. It's the skin flap from over Ah. that goes over the snout and most people who barbecue them cut the actual um you know the what's the pink patty thing that that's the actual snout right that that actually gets cut off and so you have it's basically this the skin and gristle and fat that gets cut off of the bridge of the pig's snout and it's, you know, probably about the size, you know, of a, of a washcloth, about half the size of a washcloth, maybe. And size of an eight and a half, by, or, you know, size of an envelope that you might put a letter in. And um, you marinate this in salt water with vinegar and or hot sauce uh, overnight. And then it just gets a really low and slow cook uh, over you know, coals is, is the way to do it. If you're, if you're going to call it barbecue, some people nowadays just do it on a gas grill and it's, it's just not the same, but you know, you can do it with charcoal. You don't need to go and you don't need to burn a fire of hickory wood and then scoop over the coals, like, you know, quote unquote, real barbecue charcoal is actually, you know, this charcoal you buy at the store actually cuts that process out. You're actually just buying the, the, the embers, So um, you can actually barbecue over charcoal. Don't let anybody tell you you have to have wood. Um, But so you over the coals, you cook this this the snoot and you've constantly turning it. And, you know, around 215, 225 degrees is the best place to keep it. But uh, after several hours of just slowly turning these over and over, uh, they gradually cook, render out. Uh, they lose all of their fat uh, and the skin cooks and starts sort of starts to become very tender. But then it, just like a chicharron, because it's dried out also as part of this process, it starts to, to sort of puff up and get really crunchy, crispy. And hmm. so it takes several hours, but it's it's like a big chicharron that is just tastes of barbecue. And uh, they're abs- they're just fantastic. Um, but they're really hard to find. I think people are just turned off by the whole idea of a snoot. So in Chicago, you can get the the rib tip and hot link combo is sort of the the thing in the South Side barbecue. In East St. Louis, you can get the rib tip and snoot combo, which is what I would get when I go down there because that's actually an even better combo than the tip and link because 
the rib tips, if you've ever had them, have this really, yeah, they're cartilaginous, but there's also like the rendered fat in them is really, really creamy. The meat is too mm-hmm. some. It's got this real tactile, textural um, experience that goes with it. There's so many textures uh, involved. And then you take this snoot, which is just crunchy. It's like eating uh, hog, pig rinds. It literally is a pig yeah. rind. It's just when you cooked over a... It's just when you cooked over a coals. And so you have this crispy, crunchy, uh, and you know, toothsome meat and slurpy sauce and, you know, everything, the, the cartilaginous tips and all of these textures. It's just a, it's just a masterpiece. And I think speaks to the ingenuity and brilliance of, you know, of soul food cooks and, and of cooks in dispossessed communities uh, that we have here in the Midwest, uh, how people can be so resourceful with things like pig snoots and the the tossed ends of of racks of ribs. No question about it. I mean, I, it's that that resourcefulness is definitely, I think, a, a, a characteristic in many parts of the Midwest. And I, I also have to say that I so appreciate your attention to descriptive detail in all of this, um, given the fact that this is radio and it's hard um, sometimes to grasp things that, you know, it, it have those, that tactile aspect and of course all of the senses involved in food. So those descriptions were incredibly useful, I think, and I definitely are going to drew me in and I'm sure are drawing our listeners in as well. But the snoot conversation though makes me think that it might not be the most approachable of the recipes in your book. Um, it might not be one, you know, an ingredient that's accessible, accessible to many. So if you were to give a suggestion to, um, you know, a reader of your cookbook who is looking to, uh, for a place to start, someplace that might be a low barrier to entry to start to get to know um, the recipes in the book uh, and better understand Midwestern cuisine, where would you tell them to start? Oh, well, Midwesterners love to bake. So I would definitely, and sweets were always, you know, of any community event, the sweets were always the highlight. And, you know, women, whether you're in an inner city church or uh, a country church, uh, and you know, if you have the church bake sale or a church supper where everybody's bringing their desserts, it's almost sort of an unspoken competition mm-hmm. where um, everyone is trying to show off their best. And so, I, I would say a great and very, very approachable place to start is with my grandma's um, wild or the strawberry custard pie. It's really easy. You can even start with a store-bought pie shell if you must. Um, And otherwise, it's very, very easy. You can make it with any fruit. It's Again, this time of year, I would make it with with cranberries. We're getting into cranberry season, but it works really well with frozen strawberries. um, And it works really well with frozen blackberries. Those are my two favorite fruits to make it with is strawberries Mm -hmm. or blackberries. Um, that's a really good one to start with. And I would say also, um, you know, for something to snack on, if you have a food processor, make the cold pack cheese, it's really easy 
and it will dispel all of the myths you have it of being some uh, really sinister industrial <laughs> product because real cold, cold pack cheese is nothing more than two different cheeses blended together without the application of heat. So a good brand of cold pack cheese, um, like Pine River, the original one, I have some of it in my refrigerator here, um, is that there's nothing in it but cheese and, and a little bit of cream to bind it. Um, it's really easy to make. Uh, the fried cheese curds are really easy to make. Um, if you can get cheese curds, um, yep. which may be hard in certain other parts of the country, but I think they're becoming easier to find. They are. Throughout the Midwest. So, you know, those are... Those are certainly two big ones um, <clears throat> that I think aren't too hard to make. Um, those are some. Those are some good suggestions. Uh, you know, you get you've given us a little bit of sweet and a little bit of savory, um, and um, I think a lot to think about when it comes to what Midwestern cuisine is, where it comes from, how complex it is, how special it is. Um, and, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm going to hold you to the fact that you're going to come out with like another volume of this, because I am certainly not done with, uh, you know, it, the options that are out there when it comes to Midwestern food. And it sounds like you got a whole lot of things that were left on the cutting floor that need a home. So you better come out with another volume. <laughs> That's the plan at this time. That is great, Paul. I am so glad that you had time to, to come join the program. Paul Farabach, the chef and owner of Big Jones in Chicago and the author of Midwestern Food, a chef's guide to the surprising history of a great American cuisine with more than 100 tasty recipes. And obviously there are more than 100, which is why we're going to get another volume. Everybody go check this book out. Paul, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Capri. It was a great time. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.